Father, we thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you that we are with you. One with you because of your blood, your sacrifice. Help us to be individuals who would share that truth and to live that day in and day out for your glory. Use this message of the study that we do today to help us to grow in grace, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8. As we continue a series on the book of Judges, or the lives of the judges, if you have sermon notes, great. If not, the men have those. As we're headed to 1 Samuel chapter 8, and we're going to pick up a story. But let me take you back into history a little bit. We sing these songs. Ring around the rosy, pocket full of posies. And sometimes we don't remember or don't know exactly where they came from. This one. All the way back in the Middle Ages. you remember what this is coming from? This is a song about the plague and about people dying. The ring around the rosy was the idea that when the plague would strike, that there would be round, pussy marks that would show up on people. That would, that would be you know, red marks that would be scary. The pocket full of posies is they would put flowers in their pockets because of the stench of the sickness and those who have to take away the bodies or because they thought that the flowers would get rid of the evil spirits with the good-smelling stuff. Well, we know about the ashes, the ashes all fall down. Some think it's the idea that comes from a word that came like a sneeze, the ashtu. Okay, the sound of a sneeze or the burning of the bodies. But either way, when your kids sing it next time, kind of think about the black flag. Yeah, instead. Here's one. Mary, Mary, quite contrary, how does your garden grow? I just wanted to see if you were awake and following. That's all I wanted. This one comes from the, the Middle Ages where there was a queen that came on the throne and she was famous for her persecution. She was called, remember her nickname? Bloody Mary. Bloody Mary of the Tudor family. That she came on the throne and she was doing all kinds of persecution of the Protestants as she was trying to reestablish the Catholic faith. When you go through the poem, you find out, okay, that her garden was the reference to the idea of the graveyards for the Protestants. When it talks about the cockle shells and the silver bells, these were torture devices. And the guillotine was already being used in that area of London, a device like it, and it was called the Maiden. And so when it talks about your maids in a row, this again was one of those pretty little nursery rhymes that are very childish, that comes out of a culture that, ugh, not so be singing and saying those things if we think about the history. Three blind mice is again taking us right back to Bloody Mary, that she had uh, killed off three different men who would not believe. They were blinded to her faith. And there's different debate of which one it is. And it talks about this idea of the carving knife and all these different things. And they cut off the tail. Actually, she had most everybody burned to death. When we go to this one, Georgie, Georgie, you know, putting in pie, kissed the girls and made them cry. Okay. Do you know who they're referring to? This is kind of a gross one. Okay, there's uh, George Villiers. He's the first Duke of, of Buckingham. He was very familiar with the ladies and the men. Okay, and he got very close to the king. And the people were kind of getting disgusted with it, so Parliament started to move in. They were the men that came, the boys that came, and made them run away. It's referring to this guy and his escapades with a variety of different males and females. There's a Baba Black Sheep, have any wool? This comes out of a protest against government taxes. Okay? The idea originally came from none for the little boy. We say one, but it was originally none for the little boy. And it was written with the idea that the taxes are so major and so heavy, they go to the king, they go to the church, and none's left over for the, for the person. Can you imagine people being upset over paying taxes? 
That's an absolutely amazing thing. So somebody wrote uh, poetry about it. In 1 Samuel 8, the Jews are going to come up and they're going to have this saying. And they don't really understand all that they're saying. They're going to bring something up that is really not good. And it's, 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 you know, in context, in culture, they know what they're saying and it's not good. You know, we're doing it innocently. The nursery rhymes don't, don't equate to us the same way as they did generations ago. But what equated to the Jews was they, they were saying this and their chant, their mantra was very simply this, we want a king. We want a king. We want a king. We want a king. And man, a days does it create problems. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, the whole story is very is interesting how it sets up. And we'll, we'll dissect some of the verses, then we're going to jump all the way through a, a variety of different passages. But what is happening, it says in chapter 8 verse 1, It came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, the name of the second was Abiah, the name of the judges in Beersheba. And his sons walked not in his ways, but turned aside after lucre, and took bribes, perverted judgment. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together, and they came to Samuel unto Ramah and they said behold you are old and your sons don't walk in your ways now make us a king to judge us like all nations but the thing displeased Samuel when they say give us a king to judge us and Samuel prayed unto the Lord and the Lord said unto Samuel hearken unto the voice of the people and all that they say unto you for they have not rejected you but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them according to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt even unto this day wherewith they have forsaken me and served other gods this is what they're doing right now he says this is what they're doing unto you now therefore hearken unto their voice howbeit yet protest solemnly unto them show them the manner of the king or what he's going to be like that shall reign over them so Samuel told all the words of the Lord unto the people that asked him for a king he said this will be the manner of the king that shall reign over you. He will take your sons, appoint them for himself, for his chariots, to be his horsemen. Some shall run before his chariots. He will appoint him captains over thousands, fifties, and will set them in to ear his ground and to reap his harvest, to make his instruments of war and instruments of chariots. He'll take your daughters to be cooks to be the, or the baker, the, the confectionaries, and to be cooks, and to be bakers. He will take your fields, your vineyards, your olive yards, even the best of them, and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your seed, and of your vineyards, and give to his officers, and to his servants. He will take your men servants, your maid servants, your goodliest young men, the asses, the donkeys, and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep, and you shall be his servants, and you shall cry out in that day, because your king which you shall have chosen you, and the Lord will not hear you in the day. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. They said, no, no, no. We will have a king over us, that we also may be like the other nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Samuel heard all the words of the people. He rehearsed them in the ears of the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, hearken to their voice, make them a king. And Samuel said unto the men of Israel, go ye every man to his city. And then chapter 9 continues, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bacorath, the son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. He had a son whose name was Saul, a choice young man and goodly. And he goes on, talks about him, set the scene. 
Okay, we've already done. They wanted a king at this time, and it's very clear why they wanted him. They said, we want this guy as they gather together. By the way, this is interesting, that Samuel is the only, king, the only judge that had the gatherings of the tribes. They all gathered together on 11 different occasions under Samuel. And so they were starting to feel that nationalism was starting to grow, and they weren't just the independent tribes anymore, so it was kind of growing into this. And the tribal, the tribal leader said, we want a king, and they gave him several reasons. I read them. But just to rehearse it again, Samuel, you're an old man. Okay, you're getting so old, we need to replace you. Now the question is, how old is Samuel that the people think he's too old to be leading any, you know, helping them? Anybody remember how old he is at this time? Anybody want to take a shot? Anybody awake? Okay. 50 is old? Whoa! He's not even 50. Yeah, some of you are going to go, what? Okay. He's old by some people's standard. He's 45 years old. Okay, you know, when, when somebody gets 45, they're almost out of here, right? <laughs> I, I told you the story about one of our men in the church that when, his, when his, he turned 40, they did a birthday party for him. His teenage son, the next few days, was moping around, very, very depressed, and he went to the bedroom and said to his 14-year-old, he says, what's the matter? What's wrong with you? Ever since we had the family get together for my party, you've just been so dis, you know, just depressed. He says, Dad, you're 40. You're not going to be here much longer. I'm just upset. <laughs> Well, that's what the people said to Samuel. You're not going to be here. You know what's ironic about this? Samuel lasts another 40 years in leadership. You know, he's going to be around for a long time. He doesn't die, but they, they're at the point where they want to replace him. You know, he's getting, he's getting way up there in years at 45. And uh, so they want to replace him. And they give a second reason. Your sons, you've chosen them. They're going to be your successor. You've put them in place. They're not good guys. They are not people that we want for leadership. We've been through this before. We remember when Eli was in charge. He had corrupt sons. It didn't do us any good. Your sons aren't going to be the type of guys we're going to follow. They're given to bribery. They're not as just and filled with integrity like you. They give them a third reason. The third reason is we want what the other nations have. The other nations have kings, and that's probably why they're doing well. We would prosper if we had a king. We would be so much better off if we would do things and be like the other people. In fact, they repeat this later on when they gather that second time with Samuel, and he's warning them. They say, no, no, we want to be like the other nations. So they're very adamant. They look around and they say they've got to be like the other people. And so they ask for a fourth reason. The fourth reason they want a king is they want somebody to go out and do their battles. Somebody to lead them. We will be victorious if we have a military leader to fight our fights, to lead our warfare. Maybe they were thinking. Maybe it was already a a practice. Because it shows up within a few years. That idea of we'll have just one person to be the hero out there. You fight and if I win, you, you, uh, you know, if I win, then you guys become my servants. If you win, we become your servants. Remember that, Dare? Remember where that shows up just a few years later? Do you remember who it is? It's Goliath. Goliath comes out, and that's his, that's, maybe that's already picking up in the culture, and they wanted somebody who could go out and do that and be the representative. Their point is, they're saying that there are threats that are around us, and they were real. There were still people, the Philistines and others, that were still coming, and they wanted somebody that would be a leader that could really focus in on the military aspects. And so they thought that the answer to their political problems was politics. They are thinking that, you know, if we just had a good political leader, things would be good politically. And they were looking at the politics and the politicians rather than the sovereign God that they served. They forgot something. 
They forgot their history. Their history has already shown them that God has already provided victories over other nations when their hearts are right, when they are dedicated to him. If they are right people, God will help them out even in the physical sense. Do you remember when their hearts were right and Moses is lifting up his hands and praying? They win the battle, right? By the way, when Moses' hands came down, it started going against him. His hands go up. That's a spiritual victory. But it happened on the battlefield, but it was brought by spiritual power. You, you go through and you find out many times, they shouldn't have won at Jericho. That was an impenetrable city. What brought the walls down? Oh, the trumpets. They blew at such a high rate that the stones fell down. Now, it was a spiritual victory wrought by a providential God that he worked in such a way that the walls came tumbling down except for that one section of walls. Go figure. This was an act of God that God was working and God said, I will do that kind of thing for you if your hearts are right, if you have faith in me. And that happened again. Ehud won a tremendous victory over the Moabites that we talked about weeks ago. Gideon goes in and Gideon is going to fight a battle with 300 men. He defeats the thousands of others. Why? God was involved. Barak goes in the battle. Remember we studied his life, he and Bar- uh, Deborah, that God sent rains, providential rains that came and, it's, and the enemy were stuck in the muck and the mire at the time and could not maneuver their chariots. And God worked in their behalf. You have the time and time again. How in 1 Samuel 7, just the chapter before, the Jews are threatened by the Philistines and God sends thunder that is so resounding that the Philistines run away from the battlefield. The Jews win a victory by just following up on a retreating army and slaying them as they run away. God brought the victories. God said, I will bring even more victories if you trust me. You don't need a military genius. You need faith. You don't need to have somebody who's gone to the Naval Academy or West Point to be able to lead you in battle. He says, you need to just trust me and have hearts right, and I'll bring the victories. But no, no. We want to have what other people have. They were looking and saying that what they wanted to do was take the easier route. And I think this is true. It is easier to turn to a politician than to turn in repentance of your personal life. It is easier to say, somebody else take the responsibility, somebody else lead me in battle, than for the Jews to say, we've got to make sure that our hearts are right with God, that we're living by faith. And so they chose the easier way, and they're saying to Samuel, we want a king because we want to be like other nations. So those are their reasons. Here's the big question. What does God say? How does God respond? Well, we already read. God is going to respond in a very blunt fashion. Now, Samuel first hears it. We already read. Samuel's first response, it says that he is displeased by the evil in the Hebrew. He is upset over the evil. He considers this extremely evil. And the reason is because he thinks they rejected God. We understand that. He would be upset because he is also responding and saying, you have rejected the Lord your God. He is your king. He's going to repeat this later on. He's going to say, he was your king and you rejected him. But God, in response to Samuel, says, Samuel, understand something. They haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. What's he telling him? Samuel feels some personal hurt here. Samuel understands that and is taking this as a personal affront that they have rejected him. You understand that. You're a school teacher and all of a sudden some student says, I don't want to be in your class anymore. They might have a good reason, but you almost feel personally like, well, what did I do wrong? You know, somebody that, that, you know, you hired somebody to do some work for you around the place, around the house, and they just show up one day and say, I don't want to work for you anymore. 
you feel kind of like, hmm, they rejected you. You take it personal. And so Samuel did that, and God's saying, that's not the case. That's not what's happening here. He said, what it is, is they've rejected me. God took it personal. God is upset about it. In fact, he makes it very clear, they have rejected me. You know what struck me? Is look at the next verse, how God compares this. He says, they have rejected me. Look down in verse 8 that we already read. He said, this is just like they've been doing for generations. Ever since they left Egypt, they've been rejecting me. They've been rejecting me. They've been rejecting me. What's he comparing? What's he talking about? What's he saying? What did, in what ways did these people reject God since they've come out of Egypt? It's one way. Do you remember what it is? What did they keep on turning to? Other gods. Other gods. Idolatry. Time and time again. God is saying this is an act of idolatry on that same par. This is so offensive to me. I am such a jealous God in a good sense. I'm such a jealous God. I wanted to be their king. I wanted to be the one that they would trust in. I wanted to be leading and guiding. I wanted them to have that personal relationship with me, but they're rejecting me. And it's just like turning to other gods. And God was highly, highly offended by this and made the comparison. As well, what God does is he says, okay, he says, I'm, re- I'm offended by it. And uh, you and I need to pause and say, okay, did the Jews know that God was... I I have some commentaries on my shelf. They say, you know, the Jews, let's cut them a break. They didn't know God was to be their their king. Really? Really? This was a theocratic kingdom. This wasn't a republic. This wasn't a democracy. God set up from the very beginning, when he was at Mount Sinai, you're going to have a theocracy. A theocracy is God is ruling through the priest or through the, the decided leader that he had. When they were, back in the days of Moses, when they were wrapping up Moses' ministry, remember the book of Deuteronomy? Moses is rehearsing the law. It's called Deuteronomy, the second law. He's rehearsing it a second time, and he's repeating all the commandments that says, here's what you live by. As he winds down the book, this is what Moses' comments are. He says, the Lord came from Sinai, yea, he loved the people. Moses commanded us a law. And then it goes on and makes the next statement. And he, God, was king in Israel. Jeshurun is a, is a nickname. Is, uh, he was king in Israel when the heads of the people and tribes of the people were gathered together. They knew it. They knew this passage. They knew that God was to be the king, and they declared that at that time, right before they go into the promised land. In fact, when Balaam, remember they're marching through the wilderness, and, and Balaam is hired to curse the Israelites? Remember this story? Yes, no? Okay, he's to curse them, but he can't curse. Every time he opens his mouth to curse and pronounce something against the Jews, what comes out? A blessing instead. When Balaam is cursing, Balaam, who, who isn't even you know, a, Jewish, a, a Jewish proselyte, he says this, I have received commandment to bless and cannot reverse it. He said, the Lord, his, Israel's God, is with him, and the shout of king, king, king is among them. Who's the king? God. There was their practice. The, the, if we can put in this, the pagans around them could see that they were saying, God is our king. God is our king. When Gideon leads in battle, we already talked about Gideon in chapter 6 when we were in the book of Judges. When Gideon goes to battle, Gideon has success. Remember what they asked Gideon to become after he won the victory? Gideon become our 
king and your sons become our king? Gideon's response was the people, when they asked him to be king, he said this, I will not rule over you, neither shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. It was understood. They knew God was to be their king. This wasn't an, an accident. It wasn't out of ignorance. In fact, Samuel, when he repeats and gathers them together in chapter 12, and they're coronating or they're inaugurating Saul, when that happens, he repeats this. A king you said you wanted to rule over us when the Lord your God was your king. This is a clear rejection of God's rule in their life. Clearly. No, no mistake. They know it. They're acting upon it. They are reminded and they're told this is what you're doing and they still insist on doing it. And so that's the, the idea that they had. And, and, and their motivation is we want to be like other people. We want to be like other people. Well, God had very clearly told them that they are a peculiar people. They are set apart. He's already mentioned that. He says that you would dwell alone. It wasn't isolationism, but it was separatism. That he was saying, I want you to be a unique people. That dwell alone is that idea. To be unique, to be different. That I have numbered you. I won't number you with everybody else. You're to be a totally different type of nation. In fact, in the book of Leviticus, he talks about, he says, I have severed you from the other people. You are a distinct people. You are to be a different people. But no. We're tired of being different. We want to be like everyone else. We want to just fit in. Now, there's a whole lot that can be preached on that. You already know right off the top of your head that this was, this was clear. God was to rule them. They were to be a unique people. They refused. And we could jump and say, wait a minute. In the New Testament, does God want to be Lord of our lives? Yes? No? Does he want us to be unique and separated from the world? Yes, we know that. We know that. Let's continue on this for the sake of this study. He warns them. God says, okay, just, just see if they're going to accept the warning. They don't, they've, they've rejected me. They're being insistent. But give them the warning. Let them know how much trouble this can be if they do it. So Samuel comes back. We already read it in chapter 8. He comes and he says to them in verse 9 and following, he says, oh, by the way, here's what's going to happen if you follow through the king and the kings in the future. They're going to do this to you. They're going to do a wide variety of things. And he lists a whole bunch of them. We'll, we'll just for sake of summary. He's going to constrict your, constrict your young men into the army. They're going to have to be forced. They're, they're, going to be, they're going to be demanded to be in the army. They're going to be drafted. And you're not going to like it. You're going to lose your sons. He goes on. He says, your, your young maids, they're going to become the confectionaries. They're going to become the cooks. They're going to have to work the palace. Oh, by the way, what does this imply to you? This has to teach you right off the bat that the king is going to live higher than everybody else. He's going to live above the people. And with his government is going to come a lot of bureaucracy. And with bureaucracy comes a lot of pressure on the common people to keep that thing up and running. Isn't that, wouldn't that be amazing if we saw something like that happen in America today? That there was burdens to keep the bureaucracy going? Amazing. And he goes on, he says, they're going to confiscate your lands. He's going to take your lands. I remind you of something. Who's, who was to keep the land? It was supposed to stay within every family, generation after generation. And they were basically, it wasn't their land, they were just plain caretakers. Whose land was it? Oh, God had told them very clearly, this is my land. But I'll let you be a caretaker here, and you be a caretaker here, and you got that spot. And he's warning, he says, the kings are going to come, they're going to take your lands. They're going, to, they're going to come and confiscate it. They're going, to, they're going to charge you taxes, taxes, taxes. They're going to charge taxes. That, that's the way he says it works. And then you're going to be his servants. And you're going to hate it. 
You're going to feel that you lose your freedom. You're going to feel overworked. And, and he's going to lay claim to things that only God is supposed to lay claim. It's interesting he uses the word tithe here. That he's going to, he's going to demand your tithes. Well, we understand from Leviticus who gets the tithe is to go to the Lord. Who owns the land? It was the Lord's land. The king is going to go beyond his kingly authority and all of a sudden act like he's divine. And he's warning them, very clearly warning these people and saying, but they say, they say, no, 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 Samuel says, but you're not going to like it. It's going to get so bad, you're going to cry and say, oh God, deliver us from the king that that is in charge. And I'm going to say, no, you made your bed. Uh, okay, that was a paraphrase. Okay, that's not the way the verse reads. The verse reads more simply this way. The verse just says, he says, um, you shall cry out in verse 18 that day because of your king which you shall have chosen and the Lord will not hear you in that day. So, you know, our paraphrase, you made your bed, you sleep in it. It's going to be tough. And so God very bluntly tells them this. What's their response? Samuel comes back to the Lord and says, hey, uh, the people tells them and they say, no, we will have a king. They're very insistent. We want our way. We think this is what's best. We're, we're going to do what we want. So the big question is this, the real question, what happens next? God gives them exactly what they... Isn't that amazing? That God gives them exactly what they're asking for. He says to the prophet, listen to him. Let him have it. <laughs> go, tell them to go home. You're going to go on the hunt for a king. And that leads us into chapter 9. Chapter 9 is the hunt for a king. Actually, chapter 9, 10, 11, it just continues on. And the hunt goes on, and they find the man. Now, I need to paraphrase for sake of time. Okay? What happens here, chapters 9 through 15, is the beginning of Saul. Okay? Actually, 9 through 12 is the beginning of Saul. Saul is the guy that God's going to lead Samuel to and say, they want a king, here's the king that they're going to get. Saul, when Saul starts, it is amazing how it starts off really good for Saul. When the story unfolds, it's like, this is the guy. In fact, it gets so good that the people have got to be thinking, boy, Samuel was all wet. Samuel didn't know what he was talking about. This guy is the Trumpster of our day. It is amazing. He has all the answers. He's better than the Democrats, the Republicans. He is it. And that's their response in the the first few chapters. Because here's what they got. They get a king who looks the part. Now you, you and I may not be so impressed this way, but back then they want somebody to be their military leader. They want somebody to go out and be their champion. Height helps, does it not? So they want somebody. Do you realize that it's five times, I think it is, in the text that it says he was tall? He was tall. He was tall. What do they want us to understand? He was tall. Yeah, it's not profound. They want us to understand he looked the part. Not only was he tall, but if you go in chapter 9 and look at verse 2, it describes his looks. Even back in those days, you want a good-looking king. And it says he's a choice guy. He's good looking. He's tall. He's, you know, he's goodly. And it repeats that thought later on in the chapter again. That he is just this good looking dude. He is everything we wanted to be. And when he is chosen and he is saying, oh, I don't know if I should be. I should be. I'm going to jump ahead now to chapter 10. Samuel says, Saul, you're going to be the king. Who, me? I'm going to be the king? And they're having, they're having this private conversation. And he says, yeah. And by the way, when you go home, 
Here's what's going to happen. Just so you know that God is in this. You're going to find the donkeys that are missing. You're going to find out they went home. You're going to be met by some other people who are going to be coming out and singing praises. And you're going to start prophesying. And you're going to start getting involved with it. And he gives him three different signs that say, you know, God's behind this. Just for Saul's sake of saying, I guess I am the one. I guess I really am. And so as well, this guy displays this. He is starting off. He not only looks the part, he not only has God's pat on the back that you're the guy, but man, what he displays at the very beginning is some really good leadership qualities, really good characteristics. He, let, let me just back up and just, when he is, comes into the story, look at chapter 9, verse 3. His dad says, we're missing some, some donkeys. Go looking for the donkeys. Take a servant and go. And he listens to his dad. He goes donkey hunting. They got servants. They could send others. Somebody else can go chase after the dumb animals. But no, he does. He goes and listens to his dad. But here's the part that amazes me. Now, maybe some of you wouldn't strike you, but having raised the kids and know what it's like when the kids go away to college and you wonder if they're still alive and you don't hear for days and weeks and you send notes and you get no response, you get worried. Have they been raptured and we've been left behind? Okay. And you wonder, you know, what's life going on with our kids who don't contact us? Do you want to see something about Saul? Saul is, they can't find the donkeys, can't find the donkeys. And he says, I think we need to go home or my parents will worry about me. We've been gone several days. Isn't that a good boy? Isn't that one that you would want to take home and say, you're mine? He's considerate of his parents. He, he's, he's concerned about what they think. And his servant says, no, we could go over to the city. If there's a prophet of God over here. He can tell us where the donkeys are. And so, so he's, he's this guy who's got consideration. He's this guy who listens. He's this guy who is open to counsel. His servant says to him, there's, there's the prophet, Samuel. He's over here. He's not that far away. Let's go and get counsel. Samuel, uh, Saul listens. Saul's like, okay, yeah, we can, we can get, to, the prophet would be good. Let's go talk to the prophet. And they go there and talk to him. And he, hear, he meets the prophet. He doesn't even know him when, he, when they first, you read the story, that they run into each other providentially. They run into each other as they enter into the town. Samuel's going to worship. Saul comes running into town at the same moment they intersect at the street. And he says, hey, can you, mister, tell me where the prophet is? And the prophet says, you're Saul. You know, you're going to be the king of Israel. Oh, yeah, hello. Um, and so they meet each other that way, and, Sa and Saul says, uh, Samuel, I'm going to mix up these names. I knew I was going to do this. Samuel is telling him, you're going to be king, and you come home to dinner with me. Takes him home, gives him the honored meal, and it talks about, you know, the best part of the food is given. So this young man is elevated in public, and Samuel is, you know, is showing him favor and all those things. And Samuel says, okay, as you leave, let me remind you, God is going to give you some special confirmation. I already mentioned that. Going to give you confirmation, go home. You know what's interesting? He goes home. Go to chapter 10. Watch this. When he gets home, okay, let me ask you a question. If you were told you're going to be the next president of the United States by a prophet of God and the prophet gave you confirmation, would you tell anybody? Would you tell your family? Yeah. I think most of us would say, uh, guess who I ran into? Yeah. He just told me something funny. Uh, you know, I don't know if it's true, but I'm going to be president. <laughs> yeah. 
So what does he do? In chapter 10, his uncle says to him, hey, tell me what, you know, I heard you met the prophet. And we read about it. In chapter 10, jump down to about verse 14. It says, the, Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, where were you? He said, well, we went out to seek the, the asses, the donkeys, and when we saw that they were nowhere to be found, we came to Samuel. Samuel? He says, tell me, tell me, I pray you, please, please. What did the prophet tell you? Well, he told us plainly that the donkeys were found. Did he tell you anything else? But of the matter of the kingdom, whereof Samuel spoke, what did Saul do? Why was he... The guy shows real humility at this point. The guy shows just the, you know, he's, okay, I'm not going to be presumptuous. Then, a few weeks later, they get to a point where they gather all of Israel. It's time to name the, you know, name the king publicly. And they draw the lots or however they're doing it. doesn't specify exactly. But they have the clans. They get it down to Kish's family. And Samuel announces it's Kish's son. It's Saul. Saul is the king. Saul. Okay. Yeah. They call out Saul. Come on down, Saul. Yeah. And he's not running up to the register at the front of the game show. He's nowhere to be found. In fact, when they go looking for him, do you remember what it says? He's hiding amongst all the the uh, wagons and all the stuff. You know, but he knew he was going to be the king. Again, there's a modesty, there's a humility that starts, keep that in mind. And then there's some people who show up and they say, who is this Saul? We don't want this Saul to be ruling over us. Oh, by the way, there's a reason why they may not want him. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. Anybody remember at the end of the book of Judges, the tribe of Benjamin causing problems? Anybody remember this? I know it was two months ago. That's way beyond the memory zone. But it was the tribe of Benjamin that caused the civil war. Do you remember? And it all started because one town in the tribe of Benjamin, remember what they did? That they, there was the, the, the Levite that came through with his concubine. Remember this gross story? That they came pound, the men of the city of Gibeah came pounding on the door and they wanted the man... And instead, the man put his concubine out on the step. They molested her, raped her, and in the morning she died. Do you remember this story? It's gross. That's from the tribe of Benjamin. That's from the town of Gibeah. By the way, Saul is of the tribe of Benjamin from the city of Gibeah. So no wonder some people said, we don't want him. And so it talks about, in, chapters, in chapter 10, it talks about these very people, how it says that they, they go and get him, and these people, they don't want anything to do with him. It says in verse 27, the sons of Belial, who aren't listening to the prophets, that's why they're called the sons of Belial. How shall this man save us? And they despised him. They brought him no presents. They aren't, they aren't honoring him. By the way, later on, the, chapter 11 is a battle. Chapter 11, Saul leads the Jews out to battle. They win the battle. They defeat the enemy. When the, when the battle is over, there's a group of people that say, Hey, where were those sons of Belial that didn't want Saul to be the king? Now what are they going to say? The votes have been counted. We got the hanging chads in. He's the guy. Nah, huh? Yeah, where are those guys? Bring them here. And they want to put those men to death. Go to chapter 11. Go to chapter 11. Watch Saul's response to those who want to punish 
the people who questioned him at first. It says in verse 12, The people said to Samuel, Who is he that said, Saul shall reign over us? Bring the man. They questioned. He said, Bring them. We may put him to death. And it says in verse 13, It's not Samuel. Not Samuel that intercedes, but who? Saul says, There shall not a man be put to death this day, for today the Lord hath wrought his salvation in us. Saul shows great magnanimity. I can't say it. Okay. What is it? You're right. Okay. He shows magna to him. Okay. Shows that great kindness to him. And he's, he, this guy's got a lot of good going for him. He's got the Spirit of God came upon him that he prophesied. His first battle, he leads him to. They whoop the enemies. This is great. This is great. This is the guy. The people are so excited in chapter 11 that it says that they are rejoicing. You gotta be, they got to be thinking, <laughs> yeah, Samuel read that one wrong. He didn't get this one right. Saul is the man. We are on our way. This is, we are making Israel great again. Does that sound familiar? Okay. He says, we're, 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 everything is good. We're good. These are glory days. But, but I remind you, God predicted things would go bad. Can things go good for a while, but it's going to come the way God says? Right? That leads us to chapter 12. Chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, it's just, it's, all of a sudden, things change drastically. Everything, everything that God had said, it's going to come to pass. The, the guy's going to rule for 40 years, but if you go to chapter 13, it says, in his second year, we have not gone far down the road, that he is going to be in his second year, and all of a sudden, things go south. We've got 38 more years of this dude, and by his second year, this is terrible. He begins a war. The war goes so bad for the Israelites. They go so bad that we read in chapter 13, verse 6, that the troops are hiding in caves and dens. They're deserting. Some of them go to the other side of the Jordan River. They want to get away because there's no way. Saul was an idiot in their mind. He's going to lead us to defeat. How fickle the crowd is. And all of a sudden, there, there, there's, there's this story. You remember this story that Samuel, I'm sorry, I knew I'd do this. Saul is waiting. God, you're going to do something, God. Do something. Samuel, you said you would show up. Come on, Samuel, where are you? And he's texting him. He's not answering his messages. You know, he's tweeting him, and there's no tweet back. And it's like, where are you people? So remember what Saul does? Saul, in his impatience, it says very clearly, after seven days, look at verse 8 of chapter 13. He tarried seven days according to the set time that Samuel had appointed. That's key. You were told you would have to wait this length of time. But Samuel came not to Gilgal. The people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring hither a burnt offering to me and a peace offering. And here's the, here's the clutch. He offered the burnt offering. Why is that so bad? He's not a priest. He's of what tribe? He's a Benjamite. He's a Benjamite. And it came to pass, isn't, isn't this classic? As soon as he had made an end of the offering, behold, Samuel came. Now, is Samuel and God upset with him? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, you read the rest of the chapter. Do you remember what God predicted? He's going to start taking upon himself privileges that don't belong to him. He's going to start thinking himself higher than he should. You go to chapter 14. Chapter 14, all of a sudden, chapter 14, things don't get better. 
They get worse. Chapter 14, there's a war going on with the Philistines. There's a conflict that's, they're out in the field. Let me see if I can get this straight in my mind. They're out in the field, and Saul is saying, okay, I need some message from the Lord. I need some message from the Lord. So let's go to that oracle, that thing, that piece of furniture that God could speak from. The ark. Go get the ark. Priest, bring the ark here out of its residing place. Bring it to the battlefield. Do you remember bringing the, battle, the ark to a battlefield was not such a good idea two chapters ago? Bring it to the battlefield, and I'm going to speak to God and find out what God wants me to do in this battle, how he wants me to fight. In the meantime, they hear some rustling over here. They hear some noise in the valley. Uh, by the way, for your information, the story goes on that Jonathan and his servant have engaged the Philistines. They start winning. Other Philistines come in to back up, and, and Jonathan's beating them. So they're hearing the noise of the battle. Saul is getting, you know, I'm trying to... Saul is like sitting in church, but he's got his mind elsewhere. You would never understand that. Okay? That would never be in your, you, you and my minds. But that's what he's doing. He's trying to listen here to the, you know, God, what do you want me to do? God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? And he finally says to the priest, get out of here. Be gone. I don't have time for you. Take the ark and go. And he says, okay, let's get to battle. We, we're too busy to stop to consult God. By the way, before you cast too many stones, you've got to stop and say, do we ever do this? He's so busy, and he says, go to war, let's go, and he orders the troops. As they're running down the hill, he gives a new order. The order is, none of you stop, none of you eat, none of you drink until we have won this battle. Not a smart move. Not a smart move, just from common sense. That's like some, telling somebody to run a marathon and never take the water that's offered. Right? You need, you need some refreshment. And, it's, and he orders this. And the people are going to obey the order because he's the king. And so what happens? Oh, man. Jump down to chapter 14. There's one verse that shows how, how dumb it got. In verse 32. It for the people, it says, about, let's go to verse 31. They smote the Philistines that day from Michmash to Aijalon, and the people were very, what's your Bible read? They were very faint, okay? They were very faint. The people flew upon the spoils. They took the sheep, the oxen, the calves. They slew them on the ground. Why? Why are they just being, being so careless? They're like you're feeling right now. Okay, they're getting hungry. They're, they're really, hungry. and it says the people did. Eat, this is the worst part. The people did eat what? They ate the blood. He caused the people to go against God's word by a rash decision. Here's what his bottom line is. The bottom line is he. It was all about Saul. It wasn't about the people. It's becoming about Saul. He is thinking about him and him only. It gets worse. They go to another battle. Chapter 15 is another account. Do you wonder why God does this? Why does God keep showing what's happening? He's showing the fulfillment of his promise. Don't mistake the story. Don't misunderstand. This is all coming out of chapter 8. We want a king. We want a king. We got, want a king. Oh yeah, it looks grand at first, but trust me, it's not going to stay grand. And by chapter 15, it is so downhill. 
And so what happens in chapter 15, this is the time they're told, God, said, God Samuel says to him, go to battle against the Amalekites and you kill King Agag. And he tells him very clearly, destroy everything. Don't keep anything. Don't, don't hang on. This is almost like the first battle at the city of Ai. Do you remember? The first time that they met at Ai, there was a guy who took some of the spoils. Do you remember? Yeah, Achan hit him in his tent. He took some of the spoils, and they lose the next battle. This is kind of that same thing. Don't take any spoils. Don't, don't grab anything. But the text tells us he wins the battle. And it says in verse 7 through 10, he kept King Agag alive. He took the best of the sheep, the oxen, the lambs, all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. What do you call this? Disobedience. Not doing what God said. And there's no mistake. He knew what God had said. And Samuel shows up. Samuel has this uncanny ability to always show up at the wrong moments for Saul. You know, he's like that, you know, that Holy Spirit in a person that all of a sudden says, hey, and he asks the question. He walks into the camp and he says, um, what means the bleeding of the sheep and the lowing of the oxen? In other words... I hear stuff I'm not supposed to be hearing. And Saul says to him, he says, the people made me do it. And Samuel rebukes him and he says, your rebellion, this is, this is really, really pointed. Your rebellion of not doing what I told you is as the sin of, yeah, this is biggie. This is way up there. You blew it big time, buddy. You blew it. You are all about your personal gain, your personal glory, your personal benefits. You are taking instead of leading. And you put the people in bad way. And so you, it gets worse. He's supposed to go out and fight the champion. You know, as the champion, he's not going to do it. He's, David has to go. When David comes and plays the harp for him, he tries to kill David, an innocent singer at the time. Later on, when David leads the army, he becomes jealous because the people are singing that David has slayed his... Ten thousands and Saul his thousands. And he gets jealous and he tries to assassinate. By this time, David's his son-in-law. What a relationship. And so he hunts him down for years. He's got the army at his expense. He eventually turns to a witch. He's, he gets so bad, he turns to a witch for counsel. The guy is a wreck. The guy is a... He's, he's just, he, he becomes a horrible king. He's exactly what God warned him about. Okay? That God said... I'll give you what you're praying for, but you're not going to like it. We still want it. And they get it. And they don't like it. Because we want a king. Not in God's time, but we want a king. Can I pull some lessons together? Just draw it all together here? What do I learn from the story? Some facts that may not be comfortable for you. But these are the facts that come out of the story. At times, God lets his people have what they want, even though it's not what's best for them at the time. At times, God lets people have what they want. If they're insistent, okay, fine. You want to walk that way? I'll let you. It's not what's best. It's not what I planned for you. Have you ever, do you remember every time you were so insistent on something you needed to have? I need it. I, I had to have it. I was 14 years old. I'm not going to drive a car for a lifetime. I'm 14. I won't get my license till I'm 16. That's a lifetime away. Do you remember those feelings back then? Okay, it's going to be too long to wait. So I told my dad, I must have. And I wasn't spiritual, but I probably said, God is leading me. Um, you know, I need to have a mini bike. And my dad told me, he says, they're a piece of junk. They're going to, they're going to, all they do is they guzzle up your money. 
You're going to have to fix it, and I know the way you take care of things. It's just going to be a wreck for you. It's going to be a wreck. No, I will take care of it. It was the proverbial pet, you know. It's mine. I'll take care of it. It'll be all good and dandy. And so he said, no, no. And I begged. I pleaded. I, you know, did all the things that, you know, teenage, young teens might do. Basically just drove him nuts until he said, yes, go ahead, have it. And he laughed. I remember him laughing, saying, go ahead. <laughs> Walking away, and I'm going, <laughs> yeah. I'll show him. <laughs> Nine months later, my mini bike is froze up solid. I put money and money and money in it. I had fun for a few weeks. You know, those few weeks was, <laughs> Dad. Yeah. I'm driving wherever I want to drive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know better than you. You know, you're 35. What do you know? Yeah. I'm 14. I know everything. <laughs> a year and a half later, I'm going, oh, my word. What a, why? What a piece of junk. Yeah. Yeah. And then I had to have a car. Dad, it's $50. Seriously, it was $50. It's $50. I'm buying it from an undertaker. It's got to be a good car. Gloss black. Red interior. Oh, it's just, they used it for a funeral car. I didn't care. Okay, it had four wheels that ran. This is going to be $50. This is going to be the greatest car. I wouldn't buy it if I were you. What, what do you know about cars? You're just a mechanic. Yeah. I'm 16. Yeah. I insisted on having the car. A year later, I'm driving down the road, and a tire passes me. It's mine from the car. I think I'm supposed to have that on the back end. Yeah. You know, the, I, I hate to say it. I mean, even to this day, it's just like, he was right and I was wrong. <laughs> there, I said it. Okay. Do not tape this and send it to my parents. Okay. They'll, they'll hold it to me until the day I die. Does God ever allow us to get what we don't want at times, or what we want that's not good for us? Yeah, he does. He does. It's called teaching us the hard way. Can we add something to this? God doesn't reject his people when they reject him. God doesn't do this. God did not reject the Jews when they rejected him. He was still committed to the covenant promise that he had made to them. In the New Testament, we read that if we believe not, yet he abides faithful, he cannot deny himself. When he has committed himself, he does not reject us when we become part of his family. Now, you might be saying, and wrong, rightfully so, you might be saying, wait a minute, that does not gel with what you've preached before. There are times that you've preached before, you know, when you've said that God rejects people. That is true. That is true. God does reject people. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 7, where he makes the comment, many will say in that day, Lord, Lord, have not we done all these things? Have not we prophesied? Have, and I will profess or say unto them, Depart from me, ye workers of... I never knew you. By the way, iniquity is do your own thing. Is the idea. You're doing your own thing. Now, it is true. God will reject certain people. The people who refuse to do things God's way. That is, I'm going to get to heaven my way. I'm going to get to heaven by doing all these things. I'm going to prophesy. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to get baptized. I'm going to go to church. And I'm going to make my way to heaven all by myself. I don't need you to get me into heaven. I can do it on my own because I'm good enough. And he says, depart from me, you workers of your own ways. I never knew you. If you, un if you insist 
on getting to heaven by yourself, by your good works, by your church, by whatever you're going to throw up to God. He's going to say, you've rejected me. And he will reject you. There's only one way into heaven. And his name is Jesus Christ. We do not get into heaven. We do not get forgiveness of sins through catechism or through baptism or through church. We get it through the blood of Jesus Christ shed at Calvary. His resurrection guarantees that God will give us forgiveness if we repent of our sins and call upon him. That is the only way. He very clearly said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes unto the Father. It's very clear. So does God reject people at times? He will. Those who have rejected his way of salvation, they will be rejected. Now, for you, if you have never accepted his way of salvation in a few minutes... We're going to give you that opportunity to just go out those doors right there, go and talk with somebody and find out from the Bible how you can be sure you have followed God's way of getting into heaven. Very simple, very easy. You make a relationship commitment to Jesus Christ. But once you do that and you become a child of God, again, we remind you of what he says. If we believe, okay, that he will not reject us, even if we come to a point where we we as believers... All of a sudden say, boy, I'm struggling in my faith. He does not reject us. That is that idea that he gives unto us what kind of life? Eternal life that never ends. Let's, Let's do a third thought. Those very people, the believers, the ones who have put their faith in Christ, but they're struggling in their faith, those very people will experience all the difficulty and dangers that go along with rejecting God's best. We want a king. We want a king. Okay, you're still my people. You're still my people. You're still my people. But I'm going to make it. It's going to be very tough for you. You're not going to get the best. You're not going to experience the best you could have. And they experience the discipline. They experience the heartache. They got the broken down car. They got the broken down mini bike. Why? Because God will let that happen to us to teach us. We ought to listen. That idea, that old show, Father knows best. And so sometimes he lets us have what we want. So it comes down to this. This is the lesson from the whole message. The safest and best thing for you and I to do is follow his words, not our ways. Follow his words, not our ways. Do what he says, not what we want. Oh, that's tough. That's tough. But can I rephrase it? Instead of all these nursery rhymes, this should be our, this should be our motto. Going by the book. I'm going to go by the book. I'm going to live by the book. I'm going to see what God clearly says I'm supposed to do, and I'm going to do it. God clearly says that I'm supposed to do these things. There's commands in the New Testament. I'm going to do them. I'm going to do what God tells me to do. I'm going to work on the marriage. I'm going to, I'm going to be the, the son, daughter I'm supposed to be. I'm going to be the worshiper I'm supposed to be. I'm going to pray. I'm going to forgive. I'm going to follow the Lord in commandments like baptism and, and witnessing. Those are very clear. Now, some of you are thinking wisely. Some of you right now are saying, yeah, but what if I don't, I want to go by the book, but what if it doesn't say it specifically? I, like, I'm not sure exactly what I should be doing. Well, that, here's some questions to ask. If you're going by the book, then, and you're not sure, there's not a clear command, then ask yourself some of these questions. Does this glorify God? What I choose to do, does it glorify God? Is this something that would be acceptable in his sight? If I take this job, am I going to be required to do something at this job that is unacceptable? Like, you know, serving alcohol to people. And it very clearly says that, woe unto him that serves, that serves a strong drink. 
Then, then I'm going to look and I'm going to say, okay, that's not acceptable. I shouldn't be doing it. Is this something that Jesus would do if he were here? We're walking in his steps. Would Jesus go to this place? Would Jesus do this activity? Well, here's one. Does it appear evil? Is this something that the world would look at and say, yeah, that's dishonest. That's just wrong. Even the world wouldn't do that. He says, okay, then, then we shouldn't be doing it. That's going by the book. Going by the book is saying, okay, am I, am I thinking of doing something that would harm my body? My body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. I'm supposed to take care of it. Would Jesus, you know, would I want Jesus with me when I'm doing this activity? You know, if I'm going to this place, if I'm doing this thing, what if Jesus were there? He is. If you're born again, could this cause another Christian to stumble? By what I say, but what I'm doing, could I cause somebody to, to give up on Christ? To do wrong? Does this hurt or help my witness? You know, we ask these questions, and we say, this is going by the book. This is the way we're to live. This is why we come to church, to learn how do we serve God better? How do we worship Him better? Go by the book. Go by the book. Go by the book. Not by your wants, not by your desire. Go by the book. Go by the book. There, you know, if we do, God blesses. There's Charles Duke, Apollo 16. He's asked afterwards. He's there in, in one of those press con, post, uh, post uh, yeah, mission, press conference, and they asked him the question. One way he said, when you were on the moon, when you were en route back and forth, you're a long ways from NASA's headquarters. Could you play around, fool around, do whatever you wanted? I mean, NASA's not here. His response was, yes, if we didn't want to return to Earth. <laughs> and he went on to explain. He said, we did everything by the book. The time, the, the, everything went by the book that NASA had had. He said, and we went by the book because things were so exact. He said, when we landed back on Earth, we landed heavy with fuel. They called it very heavy. He said, we went by the book and we were still heavy with fuel. We had 60 seconds of fuel left. He said, we were heavy. That was more than was anticipated. But he said, we had to go by the book. Go by the book. Maybe this should be our prayer this morning. Maybe what you and I should be doing is exactly what David prayed in the Old Testament. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes. I shall keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Is that your prayer today? It ought to be.